Here's a question. How does an ordinary person land their dream job in the sports industry immediately after graduating? Welcome to the Sports Grad Podcast, your bite-sized guide to enter the sports industry. I'm Ruben Williams. And I'm Ryan Walker. In 2017, we said goodbye to exams and hello to full-time work. This is a behind-the-scenes reveal of exactly how the best sports industry professionals in the world created careers that most only dream of. We believe every dream job in sport is worth chasing, and that's why we want to give you the tools to make it a reality. For a proven process to getting jobs in sport, download our free ebook. How to Get Jumps in Sport, The Sports Grad Method. You can get this for free at www.sportsgrad.com.au. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Sports Grad Podcast. My name is Ruben Williams and with me, as always, is the lovable Ryan Walker. How are you, mate? I'm going well, mate. Uh, how are you going? I'm fantastic. It's always a pleasure to be joined by you. I hear a lot of talk out of the Cricket Australia offices that everywhere you walk, it's, you know, hard to to stop or hard to keep going because you are just uh, a magnet to uh, to conversation in there. Gee, that's, uh, I don't know who you're hearing that from, but uh, yeah, I mean, what can I say? Uh, we're not, I'm not in the office too much, but um, I guess if, you know, I'm a magnet for conversation, I think I'll take that. So, how's everything with you? Obviously, down in Lawn, uh, how is the household? House is going well. Uh, it's very nice, very peaceful down here. Allows for a, a lot of uh, pod time, which which I'm loving. And one of the fantastic parts of this pod is that we get to chat with super interesting people. And now we've chatted with a lot of different people working in the industry. Today is the first time we've chatted with a few people researching the industry. We're talking, of course, about uh, Dr. Adam Card from the Swinburne University and Jonathan Robertson from Deakin University. Now, together they've paired up to produce this report called Disruptor and Accelerator, COVID-19's Impact on the Australian Sport Industry. And so, we've got a really good insight into how the pandemic has impacted uh, the Australian sports industry, which has got a lot of different implications and takeaways for people who want to enter the industry. So, what did you learn from this uh, chat, Ryan? What were some of the main things you took away that we can look forward to? Yeah, I think it was absolutely awesome. Uh, I think, is it the first time I've ever done a podcast with two guests, uh, which made yes, it, you know, yes, it even even better? Um, but no, all jokes aside, I think awesome to talk to people who have actually researched, you know, the future of sport and, and how the pandemic has, has had this effect. So, one thing I really loved, which they both mentioned, was, you know, tips for keeping in touch with digital trends in sports. Um, you know, it's such a – it's an area that is just constantly transforming um, and, that, and they sort of give us a bit of an insight into how, you know, grads and people out there can keep in touch uh, with all the digital trends out there. And there's one particular trend, Rubes, uh, and I believe you know the acronym. It's N- NFT. NFT. Uh, Which stands for Non-Fungible Token. Yeah. Now, that was something that I, I hadn't heard of a lot before. Uh, and when Adam was speaking about that, I was like, wow. So, when we say grab a pen, I mean it because that is one serious topic that we could talk about for hours. Fantastic. I think one of the other really interesting things which is going to have a major impact on the way that people approach work is learning about how the ways of working within the industry have been impacted. And so, I think that's got a lot of 
different takeaways in terms of what people should be expecting when it comes to interviews, when it comes to uh, work-life balance that people can start to implement now. Yeah, cool, cool. And my last one was just the implications of a post-COVID world on grads. Simple as that. I think they raised some really interesting points around what the world of sports going to look like once this pandemic's over. Um, but also sort of now as we're sort of transitioning a little bit out, even though it's still very much prevalent, uh, you know, as we're in lockdown right now. But, yeah, just the implications of what it's going to look like and what that means for, for people out there wanting to enter the industry. Fantastic, mate. Well, grab a pen and enjoy this chat with Adam Carg and Jonathan Robertson. Welcome to the Sportsgrad podcast, Adam Carg and Jonathan Robertson. Thanks, Ruben. Thanks, Ruben. Good to be here. Adam, this is a, a kind of a, a full circle moment for myself because you facilitated the, the study tour in which the, uh, the Sportsgrad podcast started as, as a YouTube channel. For those who have been following the journey, there's a couple of very sketchy YouTube videos uh, recorded back in 2017 that wouldn't have happened without the, the trip that uh, you uh, organized. So it's nice to kind of have you back on here now. Yeah, it's a wonderful trip for a number of reasons and lots of fond memories. And, and one of those, as we've, we've discussed earlier, is, uh, yeah, you ducking off to do a few of the, uh, the recordings, which, um, if we knew it would be the, the roots of what's, what you've grown this to today, it's, um, yeah, fantastic to see. So, uh, good to be back. Adam, are there any, um, just going back to that tour, what were your first thoughts of Ruben back in the day? Obviously, we speak a lot about this, this study tour he went on where the sports grad, you know, empire began. What, what were your first thoughts of Rubes back in the day? So, to be clear, the, the study tour was primarily a master's study tour. So, there were only two yeah. or three undergrads that we accepted to go on to the oh. tour. And I think the quality of those three undergrads that we did choose was really high. Ruben was obviously one of those. But, no, I do remember it wasn't um, the first interaction I'd had. I'd, I'd sort of been been lecturing at Deakin all through, I think, Ruben's um, time there, his undergrad degree. So, I knew him well, um, exactly the sort of person that we wanted to take on the study tour, demonstrated all the right, um, the right characteristics in terms of being inquisitive and asking the right questions, being a good networker. So absolutely no hesitation in, in taking Ruben on the tour and glad this is an outcome of it. Oh, brilliant. I just wanted to, wanted to make sure and a sense check. Obviously, a lot of chat about this and um, it's good to see that he was such a, a model student back in the day, Rube. So well done to you and oh. we always speak fondly of your time at Deakin. So it's, uh, it's good to see Ryan, I look forward to the day we get to interview some of your past lecturers, but we might we might pull this back to the reason that we're here, and that is the report on the impact of uh, the pandemic on the Australian sports industry. And Adam, you and Jonathan have done a piece of work around what the Australian sports industry has gone through over the last 12 to 18 months and some of the impacts of it and what people can take away from it. So um, I might start with you, Jonathan. What were the learnings from the report? Yeah, so to put it in context, obviously, I guess the pandemic is is continuing, and in Australia, we're we're a little bit advanced in a global scale, but for the most part, we haven't really seen this in our lifetimes. And I guess the main things that we found in the sport industry is that four main things changed. One was around how leaders led. The other one was how organisations and individuals worked together and collaborated. The other kind of main sort of operational task was around an increase in digital IQ for organizations. So how they pivoted to digital and how pivot became the 2020 buzzword right up there after COVID. 
And then from our perspective, looking forward, can sport actually change? It's generally considered a fairly conservative um, industry that, that has some fairly strong traditions. And, and as we move forward, some of those underlying traditions are being challenged. You mentioned the sporting traditions there. Do you think, and it might just be an opinion, but do you think some of those traditions have actually held us in good stead over the last year and almost got us through sort of how, you know, such a period that just caused so much angst and anxiety amongst the sports industry? I think so. Sport, sport's fairly good at working off the smell of an oily rake for the most part. That's its history and its tradition around predominantly the sport industry is really small businesses. If you look at what ASIC, for example, defines as a small business, is like less than $25 million per year. So for sport organizations, that's about 98% of sport. So if you look at what you need to operate in that environment mm. in general, you need flexibility, agility to deal with uncertainty, to be able to think on your feet. And, and I think we saw more of that come through. And, and I think that actually holds sport in, in a pretty good spot as it comes out um, of the pandemic over the next one to three years. And off the back of that, what are the what are the implications for students and recent grads who are thinking about their own careers in sport? Um, so I think for graduates, nothing much changes. I think you need to develop a skill set that is valuable and that you can demonstrate to future employees. I think that's the fundamental premise of education, gaining experience, gaining knowledge. If you can't show how your knowledge, skills and experience deliver value to an organisation, that's not going to get you through an interview. That's not going to get you into a, into a job. What I think is, is changing is the willingness for sport organisations to challenge those preconceived ideas around what is valuable to their organisation. So if you have a new idea or something slightly out of the box, that's probably more accepted than it was 12 or 18 months ago um, moving forward. So I, I think that and developing a specialised skill set. So if you're thinking a core structure, you might have some core business or core sport units, but then you might also have a bunch of electives where you can actually develop a business analytics skill set. You can develop a consumer behaviour or marketing skill set above and beyond what others in your course might actually do. So I think they're kind of the main things that, that students should look to develop from a university perspective. Um, Adam can probably touch on some of the more broader skill sets out there in terms of an experience or knowledge perspective as well. And I think picking up on that, one of the key things is around this idea of uncertainty. And that for all of the leaders that we spoke to, that was one of the key aspects of really not knowing you know, what was next in the process, what was a month, what was six months down the track. And we're seeing that continue now and we're going to see that continue for a little while. So I think even that sort of setting of, of being able to demonstrate you know, as a student or as someone who's building an experienced skill set that you've worked in dynamic settings that you've, you've, you've been part of different types of teams. It might be from a, a committee or a board point of view at a local club. Um, it may be in volunteer experience, but that you've worked in different environments, that you've got examples of dealing with uncertainty. That's really important. That you've built collaborations, that you're aware of how to create value between different parts of organisations. Again, the leaders that we spoke to spoke a lot about collaborating more. So they were more likely to look at other state sporting organisations or other national sport organisations as partners in this journey 
and share knowledge and share information to an extent that they hadn't done before. So again, if we take that back into building experience and demonstrating an ability to show those sorts of principles as you're building your initial journey into the industry, I think they become a couple of really critical aspects as well. Yeah, fantastic. I think if that piece around uncertainty is becoming more and more apparent in you know established organisations, there's almost even more reason to get involved at grassroots just because by the title grassroots, they are sometimes pretty unsteady and inconsistent organisations to be a part of and people have got their own priorities, people are volunteering their time. So you're going to have to ride a whole bunch of different waves when you go through them. So they are the perfect breeding ground for what the sports industry uh, is becoming out of this report. Um, with regards to to ways of working, how have those things changed within organisations and what sort of things can grads expect when they step into an organisation? Yeah, I, I think the first thing, that they're probably not going to be stepping into an organisation for, for a little while in Melbourne at least, but the idea of place changes. If we think about this from a technological perspective to start with, we have people working all around the world now and, and sport organisations do. So if you think about what that means for sport in Australia, sport has traditionally been a place based good and service you had to go to the oval to play the game you had to go to the gym to push the weights and so on if you compare that with the other extreme of an organization like upwork or similar where they're basically a global globally distributed workforce we're somewhere in between that now from the business side of sport the on-field stuff will by definition always be on-field and play-based but you start looking more broadly at sort of the typical esports example, and 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 although that gets overplayed a lot of the time, that is a type of phenomena that is now really decentralised around the world. So, in, in our um, research, we found that this type of middle ground, both from a work perspective, but also from a training and participation perspective, actually started to come through. So. What that looks like for cycling or rowing or running is what we call the stratification of, of sport where you might actually have sport organizations that you might actually organize from your lounge room where on Strava or Peloton or whatever it is, you're doing virtual tours of a cycling race through the Victorian countryside with people on digital bikes all around the world. So I think mm. that's kind of the underlying premise around a digital shift in sport. It's this new middle ground that a lot of sport organisations are beginning to play with and then a really dispersed workforce around the world. So your ability to self-manage and self-time and progress and actually get the job done in that environment is a big shift from some of our CEOs and some of our, our managers who were very used to being the first people in the car park and the last ones to leave. What do you think it means as well? Because... You know, if we're all working differently and say in a, in a normal world, you lived in Perth, you wanted to work in the AFL and it's in Melbourne, don't you think this just kind of completely throws that theory up in the air now that we can all work from home, we can all, everything's remote, we don't need to be in the office? Like, do you think organisations are naturally going to expand the horizons in terms of hiring people from different places? Are you signalling a return to Perth? <laughs> no not at all not at all i just meant like and we've spoken about it a few times where it's like how people want to obviously move cities you know m move to the place where they a big organization is but now that this kind of takes that away you don't need to make a big move to work somewhere 
I think that's probably one big shift in the way we are working in sport, at least in Australia. I think to a point, I, I think this combines with sort of broader macro trends around if you look kind of zoom out and look over the last 20 years there's incremental shifts towards I don't know, a unitary model in sport governance for example so the states aligning more and more with their national sport organizations now in that case as that occurs those organizations are going to have to begin to manage this differently to what they traditionally did I think that is probably a little bit more of an exception rather than a rule for for place-based activities. If you're a sport development officer or sport and rec officer at a local council, it's hard to justify doing that from another state, right? And that's the majority of jobs in sport. So I think for the select pockets where there's a skill set that does travel well, that becomes a feasible option. But I think those type of jobs are the minority in sport rather than the majority. And I think you're right that there'll be an openness to that. And I think that that's a greater option for people. But I think also as we've been through, you know, particularly in Melbourne now, probably a rolling on and off 12 months of, of this sort of work, this work style, I think there are still some questions around, well, what's still the, the best um, the best environment for connection between yeah. our employees and between our employees and stakeholders and what is really the most efficient. So I think whilst, yes, we, we can work in at-home ways, um, I think whether or not that's sustainable, I think the jury's probably still out there for a number of managers and a number of organisations. I think definitely the, the efficiency question is, is one. And I think a lot of people will, will probably say I'm more efficient at home, but I think absolutely what is missing and what the big question is in terms of what system is best is that human contact and like i know for one like me at the moment i've sort of gone through a phase of i love working from home at the start the first probably eight months was great and i had have just got back into the office a few days a week and it's awesome because you get that human interaction you also get a mix of at home and now during this latest lockdown i'm dreading it i'm dreading being at home because i've kind of you got that taste of human interaction again. So I think in terms of efficiency, totally it's, it's a question. I think the best system, it, it, you're right, Jonathan, I think, you know, it's those pockets, you know, those who don't really need to speak to too many people in the day. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting and we'll see how it pans out. But the mix, I think, it has been all right, but I'm, I'm starting to miss the, the humans. <laughs> there will be more flexibility. I mean, that's that's, I think, goes without saying that, you're going to be able to present cases to your managers and your bosses in the future uh, that are going to be much more acceptable um, as work cases. And it was really interesting talking to, to CEOs as part of this research, and they could clearly identify people who were much more productive in this setting. And at the same time, people that they thought may have been really productive, but actually weren't. So the need from a management point of view of people moving through middle and into senior roles is then to really understand how to best manage at a very individual level, and particularly for small and medium organizations and small teams, that can also be pretty challenging and probably was really, you know, really quite heightened. Um, you know, an understanding of how to manage people was probably one of the other key takeaways for leaders out of this last 12 months. And we found that that wasn't really binary as well. So like, although the place does change, you, you can easily understand shifting from the office to home. What What is harder to understand is you might go with one group for a coffee every second morning. You might then just walk past a colleague's desk in a totally different area, just down the hallway and, and have a good relationship with them. We don't have the equivalent set of norms at home yet, but we have the start of some of those. So 
what that looked like in the pandemic was when there was movement restrictions, some of our CEOs actually went for walking meetings with people in their geographic area. So it's setting up a new norm to actually manage your staff who need that point of contact but didn't necessarily have the water cooler type, lunchtime type conversation. So it's making an effort to essentially recreate a workplace environment in an entirely new structure at home. Ryan, you're probably a good example for that. How, how do you go being managed and, and managing up in this sort of environment? Oh, I think it, it's 100% easier when you're in the office. Like, let's be honest. I think, you know, when you're sitting next to someone, you're, you feel a lot more approachable and you feel like you can approach other people a lot easier. Whereas, you know, if you're at your desk, you're like, oh, am I going to send another Microsoft Teams chat? Am I going to have to call them again? You don't know if they're in a meeting or not. Whereas it, you're in the office, it's very, everything's visual. You can see what's happening. From that perspective, I certainly think going in and, and being face-to-face is a lot easier. Um, the environment that you're in is really around sort of the rules that you, you place. So if you just let the work from home go and you can just do whatever you want and, you know, structure like a normal work day, things start to get frustrating because it, it's not it's not the same as when you're in the office. So if, if you actually control the environment that you are and, and create, you know, a scenario where this is what happens on a Monday and this is what happens on a Friday and you make it how you want to, that's when it can work for you. I think if you just let it go and pe- people sort of do their own individual methods of work from home, then that's when it gets a little bit muddy. And I think in terms of your audience, one of the things from that is that you can now expect to be asked a question that you weren't asked 18 months ago in a job interview. And that's around these ideas of how do you work best? What's the ideal scenario for you? You know, in, in this environment or in this culture, what can I do as a manager to, to get the most out of you? Whether or not that's from a, you know, when you're in a role and it's your six month or your 12 month check in with your employer, um, or even in a job interview, I think that's something now that's going to very much become the norm is having you being very reflective about the way you work best and how your organization can provide the setting for you to do that. Adam, one of the other things that might uh, influence the key questions that come into uh, job interviews for grads as well is this accelerated digital capacity of organisations. I'm wondering for grads who are looking to keep up with the trend and sort of build their digital IQ, what sort of things are are surfacing that would seem to be advantageous to be curious about? Yeah, and there's there's probably two levels to this, and it's a conversation we've been having a lot over the last 12 months. And the first of those is around, I guess, the technologies themselves. So when we think about what the the new higher order technologies that we're going to see sport organisations move into and embrace, and to be honest, we already have seen as you said, mass acceleration in these areas. It's going to be things like like data and analytics, like AI, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, blockchain. We've seen non-fungible tokens as one of the big buzzwords of the early sort of 2001 year, but we've got a whole range of technologies there. Now, they're really important to understand their function. We, we don't all have to go out and we're not expecting every grad to go out and become you know, proficient in coding AI bots uh, or proficient in data analytics and machine learning techniques. That's not the intention of being, you know, building a digital IQ or building skills in the digital space. But it is about having, I think you put it well, a curiosity about what these different technologies can offer. So having an understanding of how they're being used, whether or not that's in you know, entry into stadiums, uh, whether or not it's a 
about keeping safe distances around stadiums, whether it's about directing people um, you know, wayfinding around a stadium. There's lots of uses just in terms of what we've seen in the the re-entry of sport as a as something as a service that we go and transact with. Um, but likewise, the way that we've delivered entertainment, the way that broadcasting and media and that has changed, a lot of the components, a lot of the innovation is driven by analytics, by artificial intelligence. So I think understanding what these things are and fundamentally the building blocks of the technology is one thing, but perhaps more critical for the majority of roles that we talk about in organisations is really understanding what's the role of that technology. So really that bridge between the people and the technology and the people here are the stakeholders that we talk about. They're the participants, uh, they're the fans, they're the coaches, there's the, the, those that are delivering services across um, the country or more broadly in terms of sport. So I think really understanding the value that technology creates, I think that's the key point. Yes, the technical components are, are great to know and great to engage with, um, but increasingly really building that bridge between, well, what does this mean? And, and having intelligent conversations in interviews and be able to demonstrate and understanding not only of that technology, but how it can be applied and how it can add value. And in value, we don't also mean that we should be clear, we don't just mean economic and financial value here as well. When we talk about sport, we mean social value. How does it help connect people better? How does it give them a more emotional experience? How does it tap into the things that that we love about sport? So I'd say, look, if that curiosity is spread, if you're looking to really upskill in that area, it's partly about the technology. It's equally about its value translation. I want to come back to one of the hot topics that you mentioned, non-fungible tokens or, or NFTs. Can you quickly explain what is an NFT for people who haven't heard of them before and what have they got to do with sport? What, what role is an NFT serving in sport? Yeah, great question. And it's uh, this is one question that probably wasn't on anyone's radar six months ago, to be fair, in, in, in sport and in a lot of industries where they're being used. So NFTs or, or non-fungible tokens are essentially a, a digital token or a digital identifier. Um, so they are something which is really quite, quite subjective in nature, but they do generally, um, at, at an overall level, they allow us to transact and trade and show ownership of something. So to give you a sport example straight away, and the most prominent example we've seen in sport is around the NBA uh, and their use of non-fungible tokens so that you as a fan can essentially own what they call moments, but essentially highlights. So if I wanted to own a LeBron James dunk from game one of the finals, um, I could go onto a site and using, I could buy the token and by buying that token, it would essentially mean that I own what is attached to that token, which in this case would be that highlight. Now, what's interesting in sport is you don't commercially own that. So you can't sell um, the rights or you can't attach brands to that piece of content. Um, You can't commercialize it at all, but you say that, that you own it. You are the collector. You are the owner of that particular highlight. Um, So in the NBA, we've seen this year about half a billion dollars, US dollars, worth of NFTs trade in terms of these highlights. So some of them have sold for for $200,000 just for a single highlight. Um, We've seen athletes likewise sell artwork. So Pat Mahomes, um, Kansas City quarterback, sold a a piece of digital art um, and sold the NFT for that, which gave people rights to the the artwork. Um, So essentially what is being traded is the token, but the token allows... Um, you know, very verifiable ownership. And that's really what an NFT, because it's built on blockchain technology, um, it leaves a very 
strong, very clear pathway of transacting behind it. You can't change once something is traded, you can't go back and, and, and change the, the sales transaction. It is there in stone forever, essentially. So it's a, it's a form of technology, which really, if we think about blockchain and what it offers, NFTs are a really small part of what blockchain will do for sport. If we think about ticketing markets and all these different aspects, there's, there's lots to come in this space. Um, but essentially, NFTs is probably the, the hype reel that we've seen roll out in early 2021. Can I ask, uh, it might be a silly question here, um, but if I wanted to buy a LeBron, LeBron James highlight from the finals, why would I do that? Like, I, I can't, can't I just go on YouTube and get that highlight? You can go on and watch that highlight. So where this, what this really comes down to is that that collectible aspect. So I ask exactly yeah. the same thing of, of football cards, of the of the cardboard football cards that we all collected, right. and maybe you guys collected over the last decade or growing up as AFL well. AFL footy cards, AFL footy cards. So good. absolutely. So, but essentially, at their core, they are small pieces of cardboard uh, with some paint on them or some some printing on them, which is worth point zero 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 one cent. So how does a signature on that suddenly make it worth thousands of dollars? How does a set of those that's mm-hmm. 10 or 20 years old in mint condition suddenly become worth thousands yeah. of dollars? So really what we've seen over the last 12 months is and, – and part of the reason why NFTs in sport has been, so, has been so popular is this idea of collectibles has really grown quite a bit in the last 12 months as well. So we've seen a really robust growth in the collectibles market. But essentially it comes down to that, that ownership component that you are the one person who owns this. Um, that's probably the, the answer to your yeah. question. To be honest, when I first heard about this, I had exactly the same question, Ryan. That was my <laughs> fundamental initial conversation was exactly this. But I think the more you get into this, you, you see, obviously, for, for rights mm. holders who've got highlights, that's one thing. But there's great opportunities for sport leagues. There's great opportunities for athletes themselves. Um, fans and investors are finding a great point of engagement here as well. Um, there are certainly some risks. There's some environmental concerns around NFT and blockchain as well around that. Um, I know we're getting a little off track here, but look, essentially here, there's it's really it's quite a dynamic area, but it's it's really art and sport and those high involvement areas that are, are really leveraging this area, particularly because it's just that that ownership, that pride, um, you know, being the one, holding the one is, yeah. is really the answer to your question. I can already see uh, a strong market for Dom Sheed's grand final goal in the 2018 grand final. I'm not sure if the AFL. Are looking at NFTs, but I would certainly be in the market. Might not be in my price range, but that's the NFT. And you're right, because I'd want to show my grandkids' grandkids one day, and I own that. Adam, does it? Um, we know that there's images and video highlights. I'm wondering, does this expand into audio? And when can we, you know, cut up our podcast and sell bits of it? Whenever you're ready. And that's the great thing about this is it's it's really quite an accessible technology. We could have this up and going in an hour's time in terms of, you know, having that that piece and and, and selling it on. So look look essentially anyone can create a piece of content. It can be an audio file, it can be a video, it can be an image, it can be a painting, um, and and can trade it online. And and, and with that trade comes a, a very a very visible, very transparent way of um of passing passing you know passing trades between people. So look, interesting space. Um, and I think look lots more, but it's a really good example again of when we talk about the technology is one thing, but what's the value piece here? The value is is completely independent from the technology. It's about that emotional connection to sport and how we make that um, something that people care about. How do we add value to that? So if you fast forward five or 10 years, I think there'll be a lot of people in, in Australia and around the world with a digital wallet 
with you know, online digital playing cards and artwork and highlights and they'll be projecting them in augmented and virtual reality on the table at the pub in front of you and you'll be showing everyone the best highlights that you've got and Dom Sheed's grand final highlight might be one for you Ryan but you'll be able to project that on the table in between you know in between the meals or half time at a game or whatever it might be so I think you look forward a little bit with this and you think oh what's the value piece here so the technology is one thing what's the translation of value how do we make this something that's not only a revenue generator for sport but actually taps into that engagement that we really love as well Mm. that is genuinely very interesting i love that um so i suspect nobody is probably more on top of digital trends than those researching them so i'm looking at you adam and jonathan but how do you personally keep up with digital trends Uh, are there any particular resources that you would recommend to listeners to keep up yeah, and I think that's where it's we're really fortunate to be in sport because genuinely when the, these things catch on, um, it's a pretty democratic area. It's a pretty socialist area. People are really happy to share. There's lots of adoption. There's lots of replication in sport, we know. So um, whether or not it's sort of conferences, and I've been fortunate enough to, to uh, attend the Sloan MIT Sport Analytics Conference a couple of times um, over the last decade, um, was actually in, in Boston in 2020 as the pandemic was was hitting that corner of the US. So I was able to um, to escape from that conference pretty quickly. But um, you know, the, the conferences are great. The World Tech Series Conference, which runs um, not only in Australia, but around the world is another great example as well to see probably more that I guess the case studies of how some of the analytics and some of the technologies playing out um, but equally and I'll give you a few sites it's things like sport business and sport pro um, things like the sport techie um, as, a, as a website and a newsletter set out of the North American market as well um, and the sport tech world series so I think there's a whole range of of online resources um, that are quite accessible to give you a really good idea of again the technology pieces but also how they're being used I think equally other industries are a great lead for us to look at what art is doing to look at what other entertainment music and bands are doing and likewise in the NFT space all of those areas are, are leveraging that form of technology so I think it's important we look in sport and also outside and I think the other really key key areas in some of the accelerator programs that exist when we think about innovation in sport and whether or not it's you know premier league teams or major league baseball teams a lot of them have got their own innovation hubs and they'll take a a handful half a dozen startups um, and generally they'll be quite accessible in terms of the information and what they're doing so i think actually exploring those whether or not it's barcelona's innovation hub um, i know that sort of the la major league baseball teams have got some great setups there as well there's some great ones in melbourne as well in terms of incubator and, and 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 accelerators, which give you a really good indication of things that not only exist as startups, but things that and these are really intelligent, you know, really switched on people that are running and, and running these accelerators. They're things that these people see value in. And I think that's a great indicator of the sorts of areas where um, we can really learn, um, you know, learn a lot about, about technology and how it's going to be used. Jonathan, do you have a few that appear in your inbox on a Monday morning or Friday afternoon? Yeah, I, I think the, the two observations... To, to kind of extend on that, I think Adam gave a really good overview of the email landscape. I, I guess the one really obvious one that we can't really ever live without, and if people aren't signed up to the clearinghouse, do it now as you're listening to this. It's the, the one-stop shop for most things that are going on in Australia. But I, I think the the two um, extensions of that are, are once we get out of the lockdown in Melbourne, get out and meet people. There, there's meetups out there i know that the tech series guys do a lot of the meetups around melbourne and that is infinitely more valuable than saying you know something from a a website from overseas so that gives you the skills to have 
a conversation, but to actually go and see how this is applied. A lot of the innovation in sport isn't a fundamental tech innovation, as kind of Adam alluded to before with the blockchain um, stepwise change. So blockchain is a massive innovation in technology. The applications of that into sport are many and varied and understanding that translation is where the value lies. So right back to, to being curious about this, it's understanding where that information is. And, and for, for a lot of us, some of that is in professional sport leagues, but also big universities. So I was lucky enough to head over to Stanford to their virtual human interaction lab. And they do a bunch of stuff around virtual reality and how that interacts with human behavior. So that is the interaction that is of, of value for the entire virtual reality technology is ultimately how does that influence how we behave? And then when we apply that to the sport context, all the different behaviors in the sport context that that can influence. So if we're watching the NBA via virtual reality, does that actually make us want to go and buy an NBA pass? So it's these kinds of next step. How do you critically think about what technology is and then what it's useful for is kind of the, the sweet spot for, for most of the people, I think, that will be listening to this podcast. So if, if all these organisations are starting to be more innovative and are requiring people who have got you know imaginations and initiative to bring about some of that change, if I'm a student who's trying to step into that sort of culture, what, what can I be doing to uh, improve, I guess, my own level of innovation that I bring? Is this something that um, universities uh, are teaching at the moment? Look, I think increasingly, yes. I think we're seeing not only in terms of the, the content that we're seeing in sport management programs uh, and in wider business programs is, is being designed with an, you know, more and more of a focus on innovation and, and entrepreneurship, um, but also the different methods being used to teach as well. So I think there's a couple of pieces to this. And, and one is to, to really break down innovation rather into into really its core points. And, and part of that is around, it's about change management. I've heard some really intelligent people just really break innovation down to a process of change management. And the other component is around creative problem solving. Um, these are things that you'll see are built into, not surprisingly, have long been built into university units and university assignments and the like. So just via those, students are going to get exposure through the university network. Um, and likewise, I think particularly that creative problem solving, we talked a little earlier um, about the importance of grassroots interaction in terms of developing that resource base and that knowledge base. Again, getting creative with limited resources, um, undertaking or bringing in even a small or incremental change, um, something that you can drive as someone starting in your career, but using a grassroots setting, um, a local club, a committee, um, a, a project task force um, to, to demonstrate and get some experience in those processes of change management and problem solving. So I think increasingly both, you know, it's always been a part of, of the thinking of people who design university courses and university assessment, equally great opportunities to engage with with, with industry in the early stages of, of the careers um, that you, your listeners are going to have as well. Um, but I think increasingly we're also seeing organisations adapt innovative thinking and things like you know, human-centred design and um, design thinking as techniques and some of the really sort of micro-techniques within there are the sorts of things that organisations are embracing more. So I think there is an opportunity. Sometimes they are the things that don't sit comfortably inside universities. They are the things where, um, you know, perhaps engaging in industry and bringing new techniques of new ways of thinking, new ways of coming up with ideas and maybe the bit where 
um, you know, there is an opportunity to think outside the university course. But generally, if we bring it back to you know, creative problem solving, change management, I think increasingly, yes, um, universities have always offered this and, and are shaping their courses to, to continue to do so. On the back of that, in 2013, there was a, a study out of Oxford that looked, I think it ran under the, the popular title of Are the Robots Coming to Take Our Jobs? Or, or near enough to, and it talked about automation and where where this goes to from an education perspective and a course perspective is we see a lot of the routine tasks becoming automated. So how much you know is basically irrelevant now because of Google. So that's a, a routine task. If I've got a question, I'm going to punch it into Google and I'll have the answer within 0.001 of a second. What is really hard for some of this tech and, and where the innovation lies from an education perspective is non-routine tasks. So from a sport perspective, things around perception and manipulation around um, sports sciences, dexterity, physio, and so on. But then also from a management perspective, that creative and creative intelligence is something that by definition can't be programmed. And that's pretty much the boundary of artificial intelligence because when you program these these tools, they're, they're not very good at dealing with change on the fly. That's not what they're designed to do. The, the other part of that is a social intelligence and a human behavior around negotiation, persuasion, care. How do you actually essentially make friends and influence people in a business and social um, environment? And the things that moving forward, those areas of human-centered innovation are kind of where we can really push the barrel, I think, in, in sport management education at least. I'm glad both of you touched on human-centred design. I was part of a Cricket Australia workshop a couple of years ago and it, the whole methodology behind it was human-centred design. The task was to find new ways to increase the participation of women and girls cricket and it just exposed me to this entirely new way of solving problems and a lot of them got carried through to the meetings we were having. I remember... Ryan, I used to come along to some of your community cricket whips back when you were in that department and they'd start a meeting by folding a piece of paper in half three times so you got eight sections on a page and then just jotting down eight ideas in the space of two minutes and then you go through the process of synthesizing and come out with something else. And a lot of those things we still use today and have been quite helpful to the development of, of the podcast, in fact. So it's awesome to see that those trends are, are starting to become more apparent. Yeah, and I think we've also got to think there. We're not, you know, we're not facing examples in Australian sport where over the last decade or so we've seen you know, crazy levels of innovation. Um, we've seen incremental changes. We've seen new processes, new partnerships. Yes, new products. And we've generally done a pretty good job. I think, you know, as Australia is a market I've always spoken really highly of. I think we, we do a phenomenal job in terms of um, some of the ways that we deliver products and services. But I think the last 12 months, if anything, and the reflections that we've had from CEOs is now just an openness to rethink. I mean, a lot of organisations are starting 2021 with, in a lot of cases, to be honest, the same or less um, staff and resources, but being asked to do the same, if not a lot more. Um, so in those senses, it's about becoming more efficient. It's about finding new ways to do things, new ways to generate ideas um, and ideas that are going to deliver value. So I think, yeah, a lot of those human-centered areas really bridge this gap again between technology and the solutions that we're really looking for uh, in the industry. Last question for you both, and it's a common question that we that we usually ask, but we thought we'd jazz it up a little bit for you guys. But 
If you're a student now and knowing what you know from this report and the other research that you've done, what's the number one thing you would be doing now to get into the industry? Look, for me, it would sit in the digital space. And I think that whilst there's a number of different things that we've seen change, we're going to see leaders and leadership change. We're going to see organizations change. We see more collaboration. I think the big, the big visible thing that we saw adjust, the tangible thing that we don't, we're going to see accelerate is really in that digital space. So for me, if, if you're a grad in this space, it's absolutely about understanding, um, the context and understanding that the components of your degree or your study or your knowledge base. Um, but I think really extending into those two components of technology, that is understanding what these new technologies are and most critically, how they're going to change the, the place of the organization that, that I want to work in um, or the place in the industry that I want to work in. If that's about you know, ticketing, if that's about broadcasting, if that's about events, you know, how do you see in your experiences, how do you see things changing and how might technology play a role in that? And I think for me, if we, we're sitting in interviews or we're sitting as, as part of interview panels, which you know, academics like myself still do for, for a lot of organisations is, is assist with some of these processes, um, that's really one of the things that, that we want to understand is, is, you know, is there a really clear... Um, and you used the term before, the curiosity about technology, but but fundamentally, can you bring that back into a, a context where you want to spend your work life, um, where you can understand and translate that value? So for me, I think immersing in technology, um, getting experience in working with it, um, and, and having really, converse, really conversations with people to really understand that value point is, for me, um, I think that the key standout and the key advancement that we're really looking for in industry and can add value to organisations. Yeah, I guess from my perspective, it's to what extent do you understand value in all, like as a starting premise, I, I think the nature of value is misunderstood in nearly every context from a, from a student, both from what they can do in their degree over three years to what their value is and the value of really small experiences to learning skill sets outside their domain to understanding value in organizations and what they're looking for in future employees. I think if you can get a good handle on that and that handle can be a really personal understanding of, of what you can do, it opens up a range of doors to then approach organizations or put you in positions to have organizations approach you. What I don't necessarily see enough in first year and early sort of engagements in the courses that I've had experience in is that type of knowledge. It generally comes right at the end when suddenly you have to apply for jobs when you've essentially been in the course for, for multiple years. Uh, I think what you can really look to do is try and map out what that looks like and what is your defining or range of skills that you could bring to an employer in one, two, five years' time. And that can be anything from volunteering on a local board to understanding any of the analytics or tech stuff that Adam just talked about, but that takes time to build up. That, that takes real work and, and dedication both through formal education and um, other forms of informal education as well. Fantastic. Well, one thing's become quite apparent to me after talking to you both is that I should be out there buying and selling NFTs. And if I was to start over again, that's where I'd be dedicating all my attention. Go all in, Ruben. <laughs> Rubes, at least we know what we'll be doing post this episode. We'll be chopping up each <laughs> and every part and selling for... A silly amount of money. So, <laughs> thank you for enlightening us to the NFTs. No problems, guys. No worries at all, guys. Have a good night. Beautiful. Thanks for coming on, guys. Pleasure. 
Well, there we have it, Ryan. How did you enjoy that chat? What did you take away? What did you learn? What are you doing after listening to uh, two of the the best researchers in the business going toe-to-toe sharing uh, an extremely important report? Yeah, that was awesome, Rubes. I must say, that was just that was genuinely very interesting and I, I really enjoyed it. Um, one thing I'm taking away is just, you know, if, if I'm a student out there, obviously want to go for a few jobs when they do come up, when I'm ready, I want to work out what is my defining three skills that I can bring to an organisation. So Jonathan touched on it, but that process doesn't start once you leave uni. It sort of starts in year, years one and two and you can sort of plan in advance. So what are the three skills that I'm going to be able to bring to an organisation? So it, it was a really interesting point. I think it's absolutely relevant because why start when you just leave uni? Think ahead. What are the things that you reckon organisations are going to be looking for and, and hone in on those three things? Yeah, absolutely. Super important. I think one of the other things that became really clear from the report was that you've got to work out how you work best and you've got to work out how you can manage that with uncertainty because organizations are learning to adapt to it and those who can roll with the punches are going to come out better for it. So, you know, then it becomes a question of how do I get better of dealing with, you know, uncertainty? Well, I think we we said it during the episode, you know, grassroots sports, all these like, you know, volunteer organizations, they are perfect places if you want to embrace uncertainty. <laughs> um, and I mean that in a good way. Uh, so, second thing I'm taking away from that is, you know, the ways of working are changing. They're becoming a lot more unpredictable. So, if you're well-equipped and you've got experience in those environments, then you're going to be better off. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Um, and the last one that I took away was just start following digital trends because you want to be able to have conversations with people and, and be aware of what is happening around you so in sport as i might have said at the start it's constantly transforming Uh, and and if you're aware of what what the trends are across the world but possibly just here in australia um, you can come across as like well informed and and you know what you're talking about and it also helps you if you want to go grab a coffee with someone or you're networking with someone you can actually share some insight into into what you know so um I'd also recommend probably looking into NFTs. I think that was <laughs> seriously, seriously interesting. Um, and as I said in the app, uh, if Dom Sheed's goal in the 2018 grand final comes available, uh, I'll I'll be putting in a bid. So, uh, no, but genuinely interesting. Um, so many takeaways. That's just three, but that was an mm. awesome app. Yeah, and just to reel off a couple of resources, as a reminder, sports techie, is a fantastic one. Uh, Clearinghouse of Sport is another newsletter worth subscribing to. Of course, us at the Sports Grad Podcast, we talk about digital every now and again. If you want to flick back through the archives, episode 50 with Finn Bradshaw, who is the head of digital at the ICC, is probably the best person in the entire industry to talk to about digital and sport. Uh, And then Jay Lee from the NBA in episode 83 and 85 in a massive two-part episode is another fantastic one to dive into the digital space. But that's all from us. We're going to go off and open our crypto wallets and we will see you next time. Hey team, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, please share it with your friends or your classmates who also have to figure out all of this sports career stuff. As you can see, this podcast is practically a masterclass and it's free. And you and your circles deserve to have it. So please share it far and wide. 
Finally, when you are ready to make sense of tackling jobs in sport, go check out the Sports Grad Method. This is an ebook I wrote based on eight years of trying to get into the sports industry and teaching others how to do it too. All of that is condensed down into a proven process to getting jobs in sport. If you're like me and enjoy things broken out into logical steps, then I think you're going to enjoy it. To get a hold of that, download it from www.sportsgrad.com.au. Thanks again for listening. Chat to you soon.